I just this past week read a very interesting article on communism in the church in which the uh, author insisted that Marxism in all of its forms was the greatest threat that the church had to uh, face in this age and that the uh, Communist Manifesto was the most diabolical uh, book in, uh, in existence. Um, I have to agree that communism is a threat. There's no question about that. I sometimes think that it's more of a threat to our easy and affluent lifestyles than it is to the church. Um, wherever communism has gone, and this is historically true, wherever communism has gone, uh, communists have suppressed church going and church playing, but the real church has, uh, has prospered. It has marched triumphantly on. It's true in, in China. There's a question about that. When China opened up again, they discovered, missionaries discovered, that the church had increased tenfold under communist domination. So while I do think communism is a threat and we need to take it seriously, I don't think it's uh, the greatest threat directed against the church. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that the greatest threat that the church has to face right now, the greatest menace that uh, we're experiencing, is uh, our preoccupation with uh, what we might call trivial pursuits and those magazines that foster our obsession with, with trivia. I'm thinking of magazines like People Magazine, and uh, Ladies' Home Journal, and uh, th those sorts of uh, magazines. I, I don't think the Communist Manifesto is, is the uh, most dangerous book in the world today. I think People Magazine is. Uh, it describes so-called beautiful people doing their beautiful thing and uh, beautifying their homes, you know, getting the, spending enormous amounts of money getting the country look, and who knows what the look is going to be next year and uh, beautifying their faces and uh, taking trips, very selfish, self-centered uh, trips, all done for themselves, and uh, spending a great deal of money and a great deal of time on trivia, utter, absolute trivia. And Christians read that stuff and eat it up, and we think that in order to be the beautiful people, we have to, we have to follow their lead. That, that's what disturbs me more than, than anything else. Where, as we've seen from 2 Corinthians, Christians are intended to live very significant lives. We are made for God. And we are made to represent God in the universe. And uh, that's what keeps us from trivializing and, and, and banalizing life. The reason a lot of people are bored with life, I'm convinced, is because they're spending their time and their energy and they're using their hands to make things that don't last. That's what Jesus called laying up treasure on earth, where uh, moths uh, chew things up and where thieves break in and steal and, and uh, where things get lost and, and mislaid. As someone has said, there are no foolproof schemes for keeping your wealth because fools are too ingenious. Someone will always think of a way to, to get your wealth and your things away from you. They, these things don't last anyway. They're all going to burn up someday. If you stop and think this past week of, of the enormous amounts of time and energy and effort that have gone into doing things that will not last. They're not eternal things. 
and looked at in the light of of eternity, they are trivial. Why not, uh, on the other hand, do what Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven, where moths don't eat things up, where thieves don't break in and steal, and where your gold doesn't get rusty and, and corrupted. And as we said before, the only thing, the only commodity going to heaven is people. Nothing else gets up there. You can't take anything with you except the people in whose lives you have invested, and, of course, yourself and the character that you take with you into heaven. Those are the things that matter. And there's nothing wrong with making things with your hands. There's nothing wrong with buying up things and building up your body and beautifying your face and beautifying your home. That's not the problem. It's our obsession with these things. It's as though these are the only things that matter. When God has called us to far more significant pursuits, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. What a high and, and noble calling. Let's, uh, let's begin reading with 520. Our, our, our text this morning begins with chapter 6. But I want to begin with 520 because that's where the context actually begins. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg, we implore, we beseech on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The you, the pronoun you, should not be there. It's not in the text. Paul is not saying we implore you, Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. He's saying that's our message wherever we go, be reconciled to God. He made him. That is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know that that people everywhere have a yearning for God? They don't don't know that that's what it is. It's what the wind in the willows calls a divine discontent and longing. But uh, they're not aware that it's a... It's a divine longing. It's a hunger for God. All they know is that there's an itch somewhere that they can't scratch. And they try to assuage it by uh, getting married and having children and and, uh, buying up houses and lands and getting to the top of the the corporate heap. But, But they're never satisfied. We never are. There's always something more. There's that yearning and that hunger for something. Well, we know what it is. Paul tells us what it is. It's God. That's what people are longing for. They aren't aware of it, but it's true. It's God. G.K. Chesterton tells a story about a little boy who heard a story of a giant, a benign, uh, in fact, a very kindly giant, uh, who who wanted to, to give good things. And this little boy went out looking for the giant. He spent his whole life looking for him. He traveled over hill and dale. And finally, he became discouraged with his looking and decided to come back home. And uh, as he was coming over the crest of the hill, and he looked down at the farm on which he had been born, he saw that the folds and the hills of the farm were actually the body of the giant, that what he had been looking for all along was right there at hand. Well, that's what, that's what Paul tells us. What people are looking for is God, and, and, and the amazing story of the gospel is that God is out looking for people. He's right there. He wants them. As Paul says... God's not mad. He isn't storming around heaven, miffed that people have, have sinned and missed his, his best and his glory. He loves them. He cares about them. 
And he cared so much that he was willing to die for them. That's, uh, that's Paul's point in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of our sin was placed on Christ, on the cross. He took our place. He took our sin. We were given his righteousness so that when God sees us, he, he, he sees us as potentially in Christ. He's not, he doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to him, you see. We, we need to know that Jesus loves us. And essentially, that's our message. Paul says, everywhere I go, I just sing this song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, some of you have heard the name of Karl Barth, the uh, uh, European theologian of some years back, who, though he believed and taught a number of things that we as evangelicals don't believe, he, uh, he had a very significant part to play in turning Europe away from the liberal theology of the, of the early 1900s. had a tremendous impact upon European uh, Christianity and uh, here in the United States as well, all of the Western world. Uh, I, I have some friends that studied under Karl Barth years ago, and they tell me that in his classes, when they'd be talking about all of this, uh, this profound uh, theology, and he was a very profound theologian, he would often stop right in the middle of his lecture and he'd say, Gentlemen, remember that the essence of the gospel is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Hey, that, that's, that's what we spend our time doing, just telling people, God loves you. Carolyn and I were boutiquing two weeks ago. I don't really like to boutique, but I like to be with Carolyn, so I was providing transportation and standing around with my hands in my pockets looking at uh, stuff. And uh, <laughs> we were picking out some stuffed toys for our grandchildren. And uh, we went to St. Mark's uh, School, and as we went down the hall, there was a little boy sitting on a hard bench, and he evidently was a very bad little boy, and he was been sent out into the hall, and he was looking very sheepish. And Carolyn spoke to him as we went by, and she said, Did you get sent out here? And he nodded, and so she chatted with him for a minute, and then we went in and looked at all of the things in the boutique, and as we came out, he was still sitting out there. It was about a half hour later, he was still sitting out there. And as she walked by, she looked at him, and she said, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. Well, see, we can all identify. We're like that little little bad boy. We've we've done all sorts of things for which we feel guilty, and and uh, we need to repent, and we know it. But the thing that keeps us going is that truth: Jesus loves me. This I know. I remember a number of years ago reading the story of Harry Truman. He was in the Blair House, asleep. He was taking a nap. And some assassins uh, shot their way into the, one of the lower floors and uh, broke into the room where he was sleeping. And uh, a Secret Service man who was guarding uh, President Truman was shot and killed, but uh, the assassins were driven off. As a matter of fact, both of them were, were shot. And uh, later, Truman said, uh, said, you know, it's an odd thing to know that someone has given up his life for you. He said, I will never forget what that man did. And that's, that's what the cross reminds us of. You know, we, we as Protestants don't, uh, 
We don't use the cross much as a symbol, and when we do, we use it more as a decorative piece than anything else, something to hang around our necks. And we forget the significance of the cross. We don't like the idea of crucifixes. Uh, the body of Christ hanging on the cross is to some of us an offense. And we, we don't like it that the Roman Catholic Church does that because we say, well, their focus is on Christ on the cross rather than a risen Lord. But if you've read anything of the older Catholic theologians, the reason they leave the body of Christ on the church is not because they don't, didn't believe in the resurrection, but because they were emphasizing the fact of Christ's death, as Paul puts it. The cross is the power of God. For salvation. Carol and I went over last a uh, couple of weekends ago to uh, talk to the two sisters that started the Hermitage over in Council. So I'm, I'm sure that most of you saw the uh, article in the Statesman. It just intrigued me and, and Carolyn. And we went over to talk to them. And uh, here were these two lovely uh, Catholic sisters, both of them genuine, warm-hearted believers, living in these cold huts up on top of a windswept hill. And we went into one of the uh, little houses to talk to Sister Rebecca. And she showed us a little room off to the side, just a bare room with a rug on the floor and a cross on the wall. And it struck me, I think, for the first time that, uh, that th- this ought to be the focus of our life, that we ought to, at least in our spirit, have a bare little room where there is a cross with the body of Christ. And we remind ourselves of what this means, you see, that this is where God made reconciliation. And now we go out to urge others to be reconciled to God. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that Paul says, we not only urge the world, but we urge Christians as well. You see 6.1? Working together with him. That takes us back to 5.20, where Paul says, it's just as though God were beseeching through us and treating through us. Now, working together with him, we also urge you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't uh, treat it lightly. Don't disdain it. Don't think of it as an insignificant thing. It isn't. The grace is God giving and giving and giving and giving, though we don't deserve it, though we don't have any merit that, that qualifies us for it. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. And Paul says, whether we are out talking to non-Christians or talking to Christians, there is a note of urgency about what we say. Hey, you, you need to, to not treat the grace of God as a, as a small and an insignificant thing. For, he says, in verse 2, parenthetically, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. This is a quote from Isaiah 49, where the Lord promised the servant of the Lord, who in this case was probably Isaiah himself, and who ultimately uh, is... Uh, is realized, the prophecy is realized in the person of our Lord. Uh, He was encouraging the the servant uh, to to, uh, proclaim this truth now and urging the Gentiles who would hear the servant to receive it, to take it seriously, to believe it. And all Paul is saying is, this is the time now, don't put it off. Don't wait until you, you have yourself together. Wait until you have a little more spit and shine and polish. No, no, now, see, at the time of your need, at the time when you need to be saved, whatever it is you need to be saved from, receive the grace of God. Remember that God is there, available to help you. Now, that's our message, and anybody can say that. 
You don't need a lot of theological sophistication to go to a friend who is struggling and remind them of God's love and his resources and, and his availability. Anybody can do that. That's, that's Paul's point. You don't need a master's degree in theology. You don't need a great deal of understanding of, 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 of the Bible. You can start right now as your knowledge of truth grows and proclaim to people the grace of God. That's for all of us. And when you do that, you're not wasting your life. See? We, you know, we spend hours and hours and hours making things with our hands to give to somebody to bless them. When we, and that's all right. But if that's all we're doing, then we haven't exhausted the blessing that we can share with others. Because what God has given us is the opportunity to proclaim His grace, His love, for people that need to hear it. Now Paul goes on, it's not enough to uh, simply proclaim it. We have to live it. It's not, it's not really a matter of, of preaching grace it's a matter of manifesting it as well. Not only do we proclaim grace, but we need to live a gracious uh, a life that's styled by grace. Verse 3. Verse negatively, giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited. Uh, there are a lot of people who would want to discredit the gospel because we don't uh, exemplify it. Nietzsche is supposed to have said, uh, I would uh, I would serve your Savior if you look more saved. And that's probably not true. He wouldn't have even if uh, if those Christians that he knew had looked more saved. But, but he had a point. Not only should we talk about grace, we need to manifest it and not give offense to the gospel. Negatively, giving no cause for offense in anything. Positively, in everything, commending ourselves as God's servants. And then he spells out what that means, to be commendatory in our behavior. Now, there follows a, just a, a blizzard of words, and it's, it's difficult to think your way through this and outline it and put some structure to it. I don't, it it's almost artless. I don't think Paul had any structure in mind. He was just, as, as these thoughts came to him, as the Spirit of God directed him, he just wrote these things down. And while there is some structure, it's not... It's not a formal structure. But now let's read it. Let me, let me comment on it. Commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance first, and then what follows are the circumstances in which we ought to do, uh, in which we ought to endure. In much endurance, in afflictions and hardships and distresses, general troubles, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults, the things which were done to him, in labors and watchings and fastings, things which he did to himself, and impurity. In much endurance, in these circumstances, impurity, in, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in a spirit of holiness. I'd rather read it that way than in the Holy Spirit. I, we'll talk about that in a moment. In a spirit of distinctiveness or uniqueness, in genuine love. In the word of truth or the proclamation of the truth and the power of God that is in dependence upon God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and, and the left. And I think this is a summary of statement, summary statement of everything that precedes it. God has given to us defensive and offensive weapons. The defensive weapons are carried in the left arm. That's where a Roman soldier carried a shield. The offensive weapon is carried in the right arm. So when he says we have weapons of righteousness for the left side and the right, we have the comprehensive equipment of a soldier. 
the defensive weapons, I think, of a, of a godly character, and the offensive weapons, which he, he spells out fourfold weapons. We'll talk about those in a moment. But I, 7b, I believe, is a summary statement of everything that precedes it. And then the uh, sort of the context, the climate in which these things are done by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Uh, the first way in which we commend ourselves as a servant of God is in much endurance. That takes grace to endure in these circumstances. Paul says, through tribulation, the word means pressure. The pressure of sick children and demanding husbands and wives and, and a hard and unyielding boss and those sorts of, 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 of pressures, times when we feel that we're in a pressure cooker and there doesn't seem to be any way out. In, the, uh, in hardships, uh, I don't dare tell the story again. You know my story about the sailor that fell out of the crow's nest and landed on the deck of the ship and jumped up and brushed himself off and said, it's all right, I'm used to hardships. Uh, this is a different kind of hardship. The word means necessities. That's the King James translation, necessities. It's those things you can't get out of. Those things that are imposed upon you, the discovery that you have breast cancer or some other life-threatening uh, disease or when your husband walks out or your wife walks out and there's nothing that you can do. And uh, then there are distresses. The word means frustrations, things that, that suppress us and keep us from using our, our gifts and our abilities. Uh, perhaps an aged, uh, infirmed parent that you have to take care of, and it limits the vacation time that you can take, and it puts limitations on the money that you can spend on your own family, those sorts of things. Paul says, whatever the circumstance, whatever the pressure, whatever the, the stress, I endure. There, there are two words in the New Testament for patience or endurance. One means patience with people. This word means patience with things, with, with circumstances, and, and basically it means acceptance, an acceptance of whatever has happened. That's where peace comes from in our lives. Accepting the, 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 the fact that the hard circumstances that come into our life are designed by God. They're screened through his love. They're permitted because of his, his grace. And then we can endure. We don't need to get restless. We don't need to get resentful. We don't have to walk out. We can endure. See, Paul says that's, that's a display of grace. It's when we endure in the hard times. And then uh, impurity, uh, the word does not here mean sexual purity as it often does. It rather means single-mindedness. A, a, a heart that, that pursues after God. It's pure in the sense that it's single-minded. In knowledge, that is a, a knowledge of, of life and how to live it that's, uh, that's gained through Scripture. Perception of reality. Uh, Paul tells us that this is the mind of Christ. And as we grow in an understanding of God's thinking about life and things, we're able to give knowledge, we're able to impart insight uh, to other people. In, in patience, here, here is the word for patience with people. Rather than getting angry or vengeful when people 
do the wrong things to us. We're patient with them. The word, uh, the word literally means uh, a long temper, having a long fuse is the idea. You don't, you don't blow, you don't explode when people take your rights away from you or defraud you in some way or do some unthoughtful, insensitive th- uh, thing. You're, you're patient. I was, uh, I've been reading through that uh, uh, machine's uh, uh, schedule for Bible reading. I just happened to get into Genesis 26 not, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it struck me that Isaac is a good example of, uh, of a patient man. He, he needed, he needed uh, water for his flock, so he went out and he re-dug a well that had been dug by his father Abraham that had been stopped up by the Philistines. And he dug it out, a lot of work, you know, take all those big rocks out. And the herdsmen of Gerar took it away from him. And I'm sure his herdsmen said, let's fight. You know, this is our well. We work for it. And Isaac says, no, 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 let, let him have it. And he went and he dug another well. And same thing happened. He cleaned all the stones out. And the uh, herdsmen of Gerar, the, the Philistines that were living in that area, took it away from him again. And his herdsmen wanted to fight. Isaac said, no, that's right. Let, let him have it. We'll go dig another well. So he dug another well. And then they left him alone. And he, he called the name Rahabath, which in Hebrew means room. God has given us room, he said. See? He knew that God would fight his battles for him sooner or later. He didn't have to fight. God would make room for him if he just set aside his rights. Ray Stedman used to tell the story of the uh, man who stood up in a Scotch Presbyterian church and he, uh, they were having a, a congregational meeting of some sort and he got this man got very angry and he stood up and shouted at the moderator of the meeting and he said, I demand my rights. I want what's coming to me. And this elderly fellow stood up in the back of the, of the room and he said, hey, what's, what's that you say? And he said, I demand my rights. I want what's coming to me. And the man said, your rights? You want your rights? If you had your rights, you'd be in hell. And that's true. You know, we, we, we want everything just right. We want, we want to get what's coming to us. We want our rights. And if we had what was coming to us, we'd all be in hell. We don't deserve a thing. But God very graciously gives. We don't have to fight for our rights. God will provide. Somebody takes your well away from you, go dig another well. That's the point. It's patience. It's one of the, the defensive weapons of our warfare. In kindness, he says. Oh, that is a great word. It's translated in a number of places in the New Testament as, as good or goodness. And goodness doesn't really convey anything to us anymore. It's the word that Jesus used, uh, that Luke tells us about in Luke 5, when Jesus said, uh, nobody wants the new wine. And he said, they want the old wine. And no one who's drunk the old wants the new, because they say the old is better, is the way the, the uh, NIV translates it. But it's this word. It's the, the old is kinder. And uh, what he means is, is an absence of harshness, sharpness. Mellow is a good, uh, good translation of the word. It, it's more than just being good. It's a gentle, gracious, kindly, mellow spirit toward those that, uh, that may oppose you. You see what Paul is saying? This is a lifestyle by grace. Not only do we proclaim it, but we need to live it. And we won't, always. I don't. But, uh, see, grace applies even there. There is forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 
and we can pick ourselves up and go on. And, and this, this lifestyle is what opens doors for us. When people see, see someone who lives like this, they realize that there's got to be something more. I want this sort of, this sort of thing, you see. Now, Paul goes on. These are the defensive weapons. I think this is the corresponds to the left-hand uh, armor, the shield. On the right hand, for offensive weapons, and I'll, I'll merely read these. We don't have time to, to comment on them. The Holy Spirit, that is a spirit of distinctiveness, I think he's saying. Holy means different. The uniqueness of a life that's lived in this way. In genuine love, oh, the world is such a cold place to live. As, as uh, C.S. Lewis puts it in, in the first Narnian tale, uh, it's always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. It's always cold, but there's nothing to look forward to. People are looking for someone to love them, someone who has the real thing. That's what Paul stresses here, unfaked love that, 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 that shows itself at most unexpected times, the times when you wouldn't anticipate it at all. It's the real thing, authentic love. And the word of truth, that is the proclamation of, of the truth, the scriptures, and in the power of God by which he, he refers, I think, to that quiet power of God that, that works because we depend on him. As Paul puts it elsewhere, the kingdom of God does not come through words. It's not by uh, uh, spraying people with words that you change their lives. Uh, the kingdom of God does not come through words, he says, but through power. We need to proclaim the word, but we need to bathe the word in prayer. Because it is by dependence that uh, the power of God uh, is unleashed so that the words that we say have an impact upon others. I've been in situations, and you have too, where you're trying to convince somebody that, that they're, they're sinful and they don't seem to get the picture and you, you, you go over and over the words and after a while you feel like about 90% of the energy is just falling out on the floor and they're, they're not responding, they're not receiving. That's because we think the kingdom of God comes through words. If I could just use the right words or say enough words, I can move somebody. Paul says, no, no. The words are, we're limited in what we can do through words. What gets the job done, he says, is a love for people, an unfaked love, a different kind of life, the sort of life that he's described here, a life of personal righteousness, proclamation of the truth, and prayer, dependence upon God, to use the word to change the hearts of, of people. And... Paul says, it doesn't make any difference what situations we're in by glory and dishonor, that is, whether people think we're uh, worthy or not, by evil report and good report, whether people speak well of us or not, regarded as deceivers and yet true, whether people think we're untruthful or not, as unknown and yet well-known, whether people know about us or not, doesn't matter. We think significance comes in getting your... Your name up in lights, having everyone know you, making it big in athletics or making it big in the Christian world, getting written up in Christianity today, being known all over the world. Doesn't matter, Paul says. Unknown, you know, Paul left it all behind. He's a scholar on the way up. Tremendous potential. Left it all behind. Unknown, he says, and yet well known as dying, yet behold, we live. I, 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 I like that, that expression. It's just... 
behold, you know, it says we, looks like we're down, but pop, here we are, we're all right. We're up and at it again. We're down, but we're never out. They uh, dragged him out of the streets of Lystra and out to the city dump and stoned him to death and left him for dead. And Paul got up and walked back into Lystra and began to preach again. They thought we were dead. Behold, he says, we live. As punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. At the end of Paul's life, he was sitting in a, a dungeon in Rome, the Mamerton Dungeon. Dreary, dismal place. Terrible place. Cold, damp, little hole in the ceiling to admit light and air, and that's it. He didn't have a family. It's my conviction that he was married. He had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin. He intimates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. I think when he became a Christian, his wife walked out on him because by the time he wrote 1 Corinthians 7, he had no family. I think that's one of the things that he had to count all. He had to count loss for Christ's sake. He didn't have a home. He didn't have any money. Didn't have any clothes. He had to write to Timothy to ask him to bring his cloak from Troas because he was cold. Didn't have any books to read. He didn't have anything. But he had everything. See, that's his point. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. And we say, when I make a, a lot of money, then I'll start blessing people. Or when I make it in the business world, and I have stature in the eyes of other men, then I'll begin to, to make my life count. See, doesn't matter. Paul says it's poor. Yet making many riches, having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Brian Fisher was telling us this past week, we were talking about this passage, and he related an incident where he was counseling with a, with a man who was no longer here. And uh, he pulled up in this great big Mercedes-Benz, brand new Mercedes, and uh, uh, came into the, into the restaurant where Brian was to meet him and uh, announced that he had just paid cash for this uh, Mercedes-Benz, which I assume cost about twenty-five grand. And uh, uh, Brian thought, now, what? This, here's a very successful man. What do I have to say to him? As it turned out, this man was struggling with some real problems, and Brian was able to impart truth to him that, that literally changed his life. And then afterward, Brian left the restaurant and got into his 1966 uh, Volkswagen that goes down the street sideways. And uh, <laughs> he thought of this verse as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And you know, we can have everything and possess nothing. We can have all the things that the beautiful people have and have nothing, absolutely nothing. And stand before the Lord stripped of everything. Or we can have nothing in this life. We can lose our health, we can lose our family, we can lose our children, we can lose our money, we can lose everything and stand before God and have everything as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. It's understanding that, you see, that keeps us from, from living trivial, meaningless, insignificant lives. Um, a few years back... Uh, a friend of mine wrote an article. Let me let me read one excerpt from it. He says, It takes all God's power in me to do the simplest things His way. Christianity is not a way of doing special things. It is a special way of doing everything that we do. 
Can I talk to a woman the way Jesus did and give her the help that Jesus gave her? Can I ask for a drink of water the way he did? Or cook fish for my men the way he did? Or walk through my hometown and help others and and talk to my men? It is bosses and basins and towels and washing fishermen's feet. Those are the things of which life is made. The dusty pedestrian duties of life demand God Almighty in us. It takes as much of the power of God for me to, to go to my office and sit at the desk and talk on the phone as I should. As much of God's power to go through my regular routine as it does for me to preach a sermon or write a religious book, an evening with my wife, a golf tournament with my son, an ice cream adventure with my daughter, a conference on financial budgets. I am not supposed to be a gilt-edged spook with wings making a holy hum, one half human and one half angel. I am supposed to be a normal, natural, down-to-earth man, full of creation's practical spirit, full of God. The 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, dressed up in mod clothes. See, that's what it takes to have a significant life. It takes the grace of God. We need to tell others. That's our proclamation. And we need to live it out. That's the, that's the manner by which we proclaim it. We have to live out, have to proclaim and live out a life that's styled by the grace of God. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, <clears throat> just need to remember that we are very ordinary people. And uh, the potential for living very ordinary lives is there. We just don't want to miss that extraordinary quality of life that you have in mind for us. Deliver us, Lord, from the delusion that that we need something more than the grace of God to make us significant. We thank you that you're available to us to supply just what we need to, to live the kind of life that will influence others. Help us to be faithful in that proclamation. And help us to remember, Lord, your great love for us that makes everything possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.